This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. Today I will be reading two short stories by Roselle George Brown, Virgin Ground, which was published in IF February of 1959, and there's Always a Way, which was published in Fantastic Science Fiction Stories, July of 1960. Today, we will be listening to music by, um, in the background right now, we are hearing Alexandra Cardenas's La Fabula, which is an electronic music piece, a music concrete piece that's kind of a combination of a bunch of different sounds collaged together. And this entire uh, show, we are going to be listening to three different pieces by female contemporary electronic musicians. So I'll let you listen to a bit of that. hospital needed Dr. Hizel. He was a fine physician. He was also a Martian. And therein lies the problem. There's Always a Way by Roselle George Brown. That's tomato ketchup! Quintus Green out in Oregon informed his wife. Look at those actors and see... Oh no, a comic character, no less. Dr. Hazel, his chest bare, his lungs flapping mightily, came pushing through the white-robed circle, just as the anesthetist, or rather hypnotist, leaned over to check the patient's blood pressure. She whispered something to Dr. Creighton, who was using his scissors in the open chest cavity. The audience was not perturbed. Millions of Americans munched on decolorized bars as though uplifting thoughts about the grandeurs of science and the state of their own internal organs. And oh, how they loved operations in the round, and particularly in color. You could practically reach out and let the blood drip over your fingers. 
Dr. Creighton did the operation himself because he was a neat, masterful-looking surgeon, and he never let blood squirt on his uniform or dropped his operating lenses into the incision. One doesn't do this sort of thing for advertising, but it is uplifting for people with money to leave to the medical institutions. Mrs. Green eyed Dr. Hazel disapprovingly, finished her decolorization bar, and reached for a chocolate cream. What's he doing? Following the script, Mr. Green said, outraged. Relax, they always end well. But Dr. Creighton's medicinal calm was indeed shattered. The look he gave Dr. Hazel was enough to turn the Gorgon's head into a ceramic fuel tank. He meant business. Hazel was a much misunderstood man, mostly because he had a heavy Martian accent and everything he said sounded either hilarious or sinister depending on how many drinks you had had. At the hospital, the nurses would follow him around serendipitously just to hear him say things like, Madame, your child has only had a had, had attack of woofing scruff. He really went off on something like the hua in whooping cough because when Martians aspirate all out, they use their extra lungs. You can hear them close with flap before the word goes on. Ugh. Madame, your child has only had attack of whooping scoff. He really went off on something like woo in whooping because when Martians aspirate all out, they use their extra lungs and you can hear them close with a flap before the word goes on. Dr. Hazel had his faults and surgical nurses frequently collapsed after his operations. As a Martian, Dr. Hazel was accustomed to strong impulse telepathy and frequently just held his hand out expecting the nurse to know what to put in it and a look would pass from the surgical nurse to the circulating nurse and around among the interns and finally Dr. Hazel would say for he heaven's sake scalpel and then if the nurse slapped the scalpel into his hand as she had been taught he'd roar like a bull because he peeled off his epithelium before an operation instead of using gloves. And then he didn't say stat for hamiostat as other doctors do. He'd say hamio, which usually came out as a flap of his extra lungs. So his directives frequently sounded like pause for heaven's sake, scalpel, Quiet, pause, scissors, flap, unprintable word, mostly aspirations with uvular overtones. 
It was for this and similar reasons, besides a purely personal prejudice, that Dr. Creighton, who was the head of Bayside Memorial Hospital, decided that Hazel should be dispensed with. It was no easy matter to dispose of a staff doctor. Firing one is considered gauche. The best method is to find him a better offer from elsewhere. But Hazel did not rise to better offers. He was engrossed in his work, and he knew his way around the hospital, and he had a good robotic apartment and a good mechanic for his car and good laundry. It never occurred to him to want anything else, certainly not money. I don't want to leave, he would tell Dr. Creighton. I like it hiflap here. I like you. And Dr. Creighton, though he had the ice-looked heart required of a good administrator, was still human enough to feel like a heel. He had to wait until Hazel left his office to plan his next move. With a planetary immigrant, there is always a way. Your mother, Dr. Creighton told Hazel, didn't sign your Martian immigration papers. I was 42, Hazel said, when I immigrated. My mother was dead. I know, said Dr. Creighton, who hadn't really. It's a technicality. But it's the sort of thing that the League of Purebloods get hold of, and they'll make a stink about it and cause a lot of unpleasantness for you at the hospital. I have, Hazel pointed out, the purest blood in the county. Martian blood is of necessity sterile of Terran bugs. I have grown in my colon the Martian adapted lichen. Of course, you missed the point. With the League... For pure blood means, n never mind. The point is that perhaps you'd be happier returning to Mars now instead of waiting until. I do not intend to return, Dr. Hazel said. I am happy here. There's so little real disease on Mars, mere congenital defects. You've no idea how I rejoiced over my first appendectomy, knowing it was. Not a merely synthetic model. Here you have more disease than you can use. For a doctor, it's paradise. Yes, yes. But there's still this legal technicality. There's no getting around it, Hazel. Sorry, old boy. How about walks in Minnesota? I know his mother didn't sign his immigration papers. I was a second-generation mutation. But he was one of the few successful flask babies. Quox ma is married to a Terran girl, Dr. Clayton said somewhat hesitantly. You are so kind, Hissel said. I know a hint when I hear one. Dr. Hissel's courtships were brief. Will you marry me so that I can become a permanent Terran citizen? He asked the surgical nurse after a trying operation. Squish that, she said, and left trembling. On the advice of the sympathetic scrub nurse, who was eight months pregnant, Dr. Hazel tried a more subtle approach. It's a lovely night for romance, Dr. Hazel said. 
directing his date's gaze to the sorry sky. But deaf, she giggled. Look at that moon. It looks like, like... Dr. Hazel slipped his arm around her as he had been directed. It looks like a ganger's gallbladder, he supplied tenderly. It was the same with one girl after another. I'm not successful with women, Hazel told Dr. Creighton sadly. Is there no other way for me to become a permanent citizen? Sorry, old boy. Still, you know, Hazel not only got to be a full-fledged citizen, he created such a stir that the immigration quota for Mars rose 40%, and the League for Pure Blood couldn't even find a photographer willing to do their micro-slides. It was partly pure chance, as almost everything is, as you think about it. Hazel, who spent his small amount of leisure time reading in the medical columns in the micro-news and watching medical events on TV, was of course watching Dr. Creighton's televised interratical septical defect repair from the doctor's lounge. It was one of those things that looks really dramatic, but usually goes pretty easily these days, ordinarily. It would have been obvious, even someone not familiar with Martian facial expressions, that something was wrong. The massive eyebrows drew together, the cheeks puffed out roundly, and then sucked in, the tank-like chest pushed in and out. Flap, Dr. Hazel began. Flap, flap. Hot gallbladder, the bright-plumed perquette called from its perch in the corner. Hemorrhage, jaundice, perlucence, flap. Scissors, said Dr. Creighton. He began to cut away, ignoring Dr. Hazel, who had peeled himself from waist to neck and was using a towel clamp to pull the rest of his current epithelium from his hands. Stat, Dr. Creighton barked. Suture. Dr. Creighton turned his head to hear what the anesthesist was whispering in modulated scream so that he, but not the television audience, would hear. At this point, Dr. Hassell calmly pinched one of the tubes leading to the heart-lung machine, removing the end of the tube from the balloon-like affair, made a quick incision at his own carted and inserted the tube. Then he pinched the other tube and inserted into the jugular of the other side of his neck. Pacemaker, Dr. Creighton cried over his shoulder. It's a transfusion He turned and spotted Hazel, who was grinning like something out of a medieval bestiary and breathing out on all four lungs. You may proceed, he said, with the operation. He was carefully pushing the polyethylene tubes down into his aorta and vena cava. Otherwise, he pointed out, referring to his own actions, the patient would probably have died. 
Blood from the heart-lung machine had squirted all down the side of Dr. Creighton's uniform, and he was damp across the shirt from his own sweat. Stat, he demanded finally, routine coming to his rescue. MN reaction, Dr. Creighton explained. But how did you know before we did? The patient, Dr. Hazel said, was under anesthetic hypnosis. Apparently, he had been told not to talk or move. He could therefore neither voice his discomfort nor manifest his chill by tremor or thrashing of extremities. In this exigency of the moment, he was able to exert strong impulse telepathy, no doubt because it was impossible for him to express himself any other way. And I was able to pick up the impulse amplified by the television. He telepathed one word. Help. She, Dr. Creighton corrected. Suture. If it had been a closed-circuit broadcast, Dr. Hassell would have gotten rid it up in the journal of the AMA. Those hospitals like Bayside Memorial, not yet tested for rare blood factors, would have started to do so, and that would probably have been the end of it. The general public, however, takes no such pallid approach to dramatic events. There is an immediate demand, not for better blood testing or improved anesthetic hypnosis, but for more Martians. Your patient, the now eight-and-a-half-month pregnant scrub nurse told Dr. Hazel, is a very pretty she. She's not my patient, Dr. Hazel said. She's Dr. Creighton's patient. But she wants to see you, the scrub nurse said, duck walking over to the desk to switch on an intercom to a room 34. She's not married. Her name is Mrs. Stansell, and Dr. Hassell says she's awfully grateful. Ah, I will propose, Dr. Hassell said, ending with a resounding flap. Not right away, doctor. It's so hard to get the idea across to you. The first time you just talk to her. Thus began Dr. Hazel's romance, and there was about him, the nurses decided, an air of polyethylene, etheric orange blossoms. There was a general softening of the heart concerning Dr. Hazel, even among nurses in surgery, and Miss Stansell got more service than rich old Miss Three Shift Carson received. Miss Stansell, Violet, however, was found in tears on the day of her discharge. The scrub nurse, now on the verge of labor and therefore not allowed in surgery, came prepared to propose in case Dr. Hazel had neglected to do so. I told him not to propose right away, she confided to Miss Stansell, but I happen to know... Gloop, Miss Stansell sobbed from a soft white throat. He did propose. Well, it was easy to see what he saw in her. It was a little harder to imagine what she saw in him. 
But such is the way of providence. He took it back. Miss Stansell carelessly blew her nose on the lace negligee she had just removed. But why, for heaven's sake? He said it was unnecessary to get married. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. The scrub nurse glanced at her watch, beginning to time her pains. Why is it unnecessary to get married? Because, Gloop, he's already been made a permanent Terran citizen. Oh, Lord, look, I'm going into labor, but don't give up. I'll dig into his records when I get out of the delivery room. With a planetary immigrant, there's always a way. The End that was There's Always a Way by Roselle George Brown. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. Uh, today we're reading stories by Roselle George Brown. Uh, in the background, first we heard uh, La Fabula by Alexandra Cardenas. And now we are hearing uh, Foramen Magnum by Olivia Block. These are both uh, kind of music concrete, sound collage compositions by contemporary female or current female uh, musicians. So I thought I'd tell you, talk a little bit about the story we just heard. Uh, it was a really silly story, but one topic of the story is uh, immigration and xenophobia, which is hopefully re- relevant today. Uh, science fiction is regularly used to discuss current issues from a different light. And as I've mentioned previously, aliens are frequently used to discuss race in science fiction. A lot of the science fiction during this time period was very silly, particularly female writers' stories, because they were kind of pigeonholed into writing something more goofy. Um, But one of the morals of this story is that having people from different backgrounds and different races can bring different skills and viewpoints into a workplace and uh, kind of solve problems differently than a homogeneous group would. And also in the story, uh, the public response to seeing this Martian uh, have the skill and save this man, sorry, woman's life, uh, pushes the government to allow more immigrants into the country and give uh, this Martian uh, permanent citizenship. So little goofy, but I think it does have some kind of contemporary relevance to what we're dealing with today with the kind of public's pushback to um, immigration issues that we're having with uh, with um, at the border right now. Um, so, yay for public outrage. And I hope that we can keep being outraged. So this is Bucks and Blondes with Ray Guns on 91.9 KCSB-FM in Santa Barbara. Let's get back to the music and our next story. 
Next, I will be reading Virgin Ground, which was published in Worlds of If, February 1959. Annie signed up on a bride ship for Mars. There were 40 brides, and when she got there, 39 men were waiting. Virgin Ground by Roselle George Brown. The pilot shoved open the airlock and kicked the stairs down. Okay, girls, carry your suitcases and I'll give each of you an oxygen mask as you go out. The air's been breathable for 15 years, but it's still thin to newcomers. If you feel dizzy, take a whiff of oxygen. The 40 women just stood there and looked at each other. Nobody wanted to be first. Annie moved forward, her bulky suitcase practically floating in her hand. She was a big woman with that wholesome expression which some women have to substitute for sex appeal. She made a great senior leader at summer camps. I'll go first, she said, grinning confidence into the others. I'm not likely to bring out the beast in them. She waved herself out, letting the grin set and gel. It was odd to feel light. She felt too heavy as far back as she could remember. Not fat heavy, bone heavy. The sweat on her face dried suddenly. She could feel it, like something being peeled off her skin. Arid climate. It was cold, but she had the warmth to meet it. There they were, 40 men. There were supposed to be 40. What if one of them had died? Who would go back? Not me, Annie prayed to herself. Dear God, not me. She tried to count them, but they moved around so. They were looking at something. Not Annie. The girl coming down the ramp behind Annie. It was Sally, with the blonde hair on her shoulders. That's all they'd be able to see from there, the blonde hair. But a man was coming forward. He had a tam-like hat pulled low and good-humored eyes, and an easy stride. Wait, Ben, one of the other men said. See the others. I pulled first, didn't I? Yeah, but you ain't seen but two yet. I want the blonde one. Gary, see the others. And he led Sally away. He didn't feel her muscles or look at her teeth or measure her pelvic span. After Sally came Nora. Nora giggled and waved, making a shape under the shapeless clothes. Wasn't that just like Nora? Okay, so she was cute. The second man took Nora. He didn't wait for the others. Third man took Regina. Regina looked scared, but you could see those big cow eyes a mile off. Regina obviously needed somebody to protect her. The other girls came out. Annie counted, and her heart hit bottom. Someone was going to be left over. Four women, three men. They all felt embarrassed. It was the kind of thing the colonists would talk about for years. Who was last? Who was second to last? Spiteful people would remember. And in a tight little community, spite took root and throve on the least misinterpreted expression or... But then this wouldn't be a tight little community, Annie remembered. The lichen farms were spread out over 
the whole temperate belt of the world because the lichens were grown only on hills where the sand would not cover them and because they did a more efficient job of oxygenating the atmosphere when they were spread over a wide area. One man, hat in hand, even in the cold, a little shriveled man with a spike of dust-colored hair, but kind-looking. Ah, he drawled in embarrassment. He clicked his tongue. You're both probably too good for somebody like me. I don't know. Both fine women. The two women stood in silence. What's your name? Annie? Mary? Mary? My sister's named Mary. Fine woman. He took Mary's hand. No disrespect to you, Annie. They were gone. I could take you on my Venus run, the pilot said. He too was embarrassed. But I'm afraid I'll have a full ship after that, unless you can buy the weight in space. I'll be glad to take you free, but the company... Annie's eyes were full, but she wasn't going to let them spill. Sally brought Ben by, already looking, self-consciously married. I'm sorry, honey, she said. Look, Annie, if you want to come stay with us until another shipment of pioneers come to break ground, you're welcome. Maybe you'd like, er, to find one of them you liked. It was a gesture of kindness, of course, but it made Annie's eyes spill. She turned her head away toward the red hills, red and the cultivated ones green, Christmas colors. Sure, Ben said. Swell. Any friend of Sally's is a friend of mine. And the way they looked at each other made Annie's heart lurch. Thanks, kids, she said. But I don't believe I'll try it. And don't worry. This isn't the first time I've been stood up. Are you coming? The pilot shouted across the field. Hate to rush you, but I've got a schedule to meet. Was she coming? What else could she do? What happened to him, Ben? Annie asked. My, the other man that should have been here. Ben worried a hole in the sand with one foot and cleared his throat. He stayed home. You mean he's alive here? Well, yes, but he didn't... Never mind, I don't need anybody to strum a guitar under my window. If he couldn't get away from the farm today, I can certainly go to him. I've got a pair of legs that'll walk around the world. You coming? The pilot shouted. No, Annie cried. I live here. The spaceship took off, a phoenix rising from the flames. Ben was shuffling his feet, hands in his pockets. We'd be proud to have you stay with us, Annie. Oh, cut it out, Ben. I'm no hothouse, Rose. Just tell me which way and I'll find my own farm. She paused, trying to guess his thoughts. You think he might be disappointed when he sees me? Is that it, Ben? I know I'm no pinup girl, but I'm a worker and a breeder. He'll see it. 
In the end, that's what's gonna count. Benz was still making holes in the sand with his feet, trying to say something. Please don't worry, Annie went on. Your friend won't be sorry. If he doesn't want to marry me right away, okay, I can understand it. But I can give him a chance to watch me work. That isn't it, Ben said finally. I think you look fine, Annie. It's, it's any woman. He told them not to send a wife for him. Any woman. But that's ridiculous. He knows the laws. Five years and then a wife. Why did he stake out in the first place? That was before, Ben answered. Before what? Uh, it's not for me to say. Why don't you just forget Bradman? He's a good enough guy, but not for you. You come... Which way and how far? Ben looked at her hard. Okay, on Mars, your life is your own, he pointed. Second farm bubble you come to, and you'd better hurry. It ought to take eight hours, and night falls like a ton of bricks here. Annie made it in seven. Easy. She went up to the transparent hemisphere. He was inside working. She shouted, but if he heard her, he didn't look up. She went to the flap that must be the door. There wasn't anything to knock on, so she opened the flap and walked in. There was nothing in the room but a cot, kitchen equipment, and lichen, growing on a number of tables. And the air was richer than outside. Annie breathed it thirstily. I'm Annie Strug, she said, smiling, and wishing it wasn't such an ugly name. He glanced up, angry blue eyes under a growth of black hair. He didn't say a word. Annie set her suitcase down and looked out at the green growth on the hills. Look, Mr. Bradman, she cried suddenly, pointing a spatulate finger to the western horizon. What in the name of heaven is that? There was a catch of fright in her voice. We don't say mister on Mars, he said reluctantly. Bradley, but you don't have to call me anything because you're leaving soon. He was a big, arid man with a sandy voice, but his hands, as he stripped the lumpy brown fruits from the giant lichen, were surprisingly delicate. What is it? Annie asked again, turning instinctively to the big man for a reassurance and protection she had no reason to expect. Bradman straightened and moved away from her, looking at the black giant growing up from the earth in the distance and moving straight toward them. It's a sandstorm, he said. It'll be here in ten minutes. Annie let out the breath she had been holding. Oh, that doesn't sound so bad. I don't know what I thought it was. I was just frightened. She smiled shyly and apologetically at Bradman. Bradman grimaced at her, his agate eyes frozen in a pallid face that should have gone with red hair. The sand-blown lines in his face were cruel. Sister... You gotta smile like a slab of concrete. Don't try it again. 
You didn't have to say that, Annie said quietly, closing her eyes against the wind of her anger. You didn't have to come here, he replied. Goodbye. I'm not leaving, she said, still holding tight the doors of her anger. I am. He paced heavily over the sand floor and pulled back the flap of the door. Where are you going? Annie glanced back at the towering giant, now glowing red in the sunlight, like some huge, grotesque devil. Into the storm cellar. Nobody lives through a Martian sandstorm. Annie ran after him. For God's sake, take me with you. You can't leave me. Mine's built for one, he said, and pulled the top over him as he disappeared into the hole. Annie broke her fingernails, pulling at the cover. The wind was blowing sand in her eyes. She saw blood staining the rim of her index finger. She pounded with her fists. Let me in, she screamed. In the name of God! But all she heard was the keening sand in the wind. She looked around. The devil was closer, malignant, and hungry. It wanted to eat her alive. It made her angry. I'll fight it, she screamed. By God, I'll fight it. Five minutes, she guessed. Maybe five minutes left. She ran into the house, ripped open her suitcase, bundles of nylon marriage clothes. She began to sob. Some were with lace. Fight, she shouted to herself. There was her oxygen mask. How much oxygen? Anybody's guess. It was made for maybe a few whiffs a day over a period of several months. Swell, but it wouldn't keep the sand from tearing through her eyeballs and flaying her alive. Rapid nylon nightgowns? Ridiculous. Spacesuit? Annie went through the one-room house as fast as she could. No spacesuit. Why should he have one? Three minutes left. Sand was blowing under the hemisphere, piling up at one end and oozing out beneath. It was possible she would simply be buried. The refrigerator. That wasn't a refrigerator, only a cabinet loosely joined. Annie went outside. On the side where the field of lichens grew up a smooth stone hill, the red devil was whistling at her now, a low, insinuating whistle. Something rattled faintly against one steel rib of the hemisphere. It was a shrub, about five feet tall. Annie began to laugh hysterically. Brad had protected the shrub with loving care. It was tied to the steel rib through grommeted holes in the hemisphere and covered with its own plastic bag to shield off the wind. One minute. The red devil was shouting now, laughing with triumph. He ran his sandy fingers through her hair and blew his gritty breath in her eyes. She pulled the zipper at the bottom of the polyethylene bag that covered the shrub and yanked the bag off. It was heavy, almost oily plastic, slippery and pliant. There was no time to decide whether it would be better inside or outside the house. She pulled the bag over her head. 
inside out so the zipper would close completely. Then she folded the zipper part under once and wedged herself as far as she could go into the space between the shrub and the hemisphere, holding the oxygen mask in her teeth. With infinite care, though, she was not likely to split the heavy bag. She pulled off her shoes and her heavy woolen walking socks. She put the shoes back on. Her slacks covered her legs. Only her ankles were bare. She unraveled one sock and stuffed the yarn in her ears. There was a sudden remarkable quiet. Then, even through the yarn, came the roar of the storm, for it was upon her. She looked through the milky plastic into a wild red inferno, splitting at her in furious frustration. Then she bound the other sock over her eyes. She was in a blind, muffled world now, buffeted against the shrub and the wires and the steel rib, but not painfully because of her heavy clothing. It was as though suddenly all her senses had been switched to the last pitch before silence. I might live, Annie thought. I might. There was sand in the bag now. Annie could feel it sifting under her clothes and blowing up her ankles. Not much. It was coming from the bottom of the bag. Probably the end of the zipper had worked open just a little. Was that the dull roar of the storm through her stoppered ears or the rush of her own blood? If sand were seeping in, the storm must still be on. How did Bradman breathe in his storm cellar? Would the storm last long enough for the air to go bad? It would go bad fast in an enclosed place on Mars. Bradman, what a sort of monster would walk off and let another human being die without a glance backwards? Did the cold desert wear the humanity out of a man? How did a human being get like that? You've got a smile like a concrete slab. Is that what you say to a person when you know you're about to leave them to die? Unmarried women between the ages of 21 and 30, good health, well-adjusted, marriage on arrival, Mars transport leaves October 1st. Good health, well-adjusted, she could see the printed words red stereo words reaching out from the page unmarried women between they came and went in her mind and there was a roar in her ears the words were gone now only a redness that came and went no a blackness annie snatched the exhausted oxygen mask off her face and gulped a pallid sandy breath of air it wouldn't do she took the sock off her eyes and bound it around her nose and mouth. It would filter some of the sand out. She opened her eyes briefly and closed them. The grit stayed in. She didn't dare open them again. But the storm looked weaker, or was it her imagination? She groped for the zipper. Foul air would kill her quicker than sand. She couldn't find it. Hell with the zipper. 
She pulled her little mending kit out of her pocket and slashed the bag with scissors. The storm sounded louder now, with the bag gone. The sand blew up under her eyelids, gripped her face, tore a burning circle around each ankle. Annie put her face in her hands, breathing through her nose and the sock. She held herself stiffly. She didn't want to cough. The whole world was blind, gritty pain. There was no end to think of, only pain. A grayness, a blackness. Finally, a voice. Bradman. You earned my shrub. Did you have to slash the bag, too? Annie opened her eyes. They felt red and ruined. They were watering so much her cheeks were wet. She could hardly see. She was having a coughing fit. She dragged herself upright. All she could see was sand. The plastic bubble had blown off the girders. And if the furnishings and her suitcase were there, her eyes were too dim to see them. Do you know what that shrub's worth on Mars? Annie found the yarn had fallen out of one ear and she pulled it out of the other. Do you know what that bag's worth? Gall ran in her veins. She spat it out her mouth. She backed up to the steel beam and braced her feet against it, light in the Martian gravity. I told them not to send a woman out here. She pushed off and sank her fist into his teeth. He went down. She was too light, but he was too light too. It evened out. She turned his face and held it in the sand. Her strength was insane. Do you know what a human life is worth? She screamed. He struggled, but she fought his bucking body, kept his face buried in the sand until he was dead a long time after. An age passed. Annie was frozen in a world rimmed over with white starlight, sequined with frost. Then the cross-eyed moons came up. She found an edge of plastic bubble, rumpled and limp and half-buried in the sand. She pushed off the heaviest hills of sand with her hands and pulled it out. She climbed up the anchored girders with it and then slept the rest of the night in her own home. The next day, she dug out her household supplies from the sand. The day after, she cleared the sand from the lichens on the farm. On the fourth day, she called a few neighbors in and late in the evening, she buried Bradman. No one questioned her. It had been, after all, self-defense. She kept the farm as well as any man. Better. She worked. How she worked. She kept herself numb with labor, her mind drunk with the liquors of fatigue. After five years, he came. He just appeared inside the door flap, looking a little nervous, but grinning. I'm Jack Hamstrong, he said, his voice full and wholesome like an Iowa corn. I, you weren't at the spaceport, so I figured, what the heck, 
I just walked. This is my farm, Annie said. My hands are on every inch of it. Hamstrong's ruddy face turned in on itself a little. I know, I know the story. I didn't come to take anything away. I came to... Good Lord, didn't you know you'd be sent a husband? Annie's eyes went queer, like cats. A husband? If they'd told her, she hadn't heard. Go away, she said. She looked around at her farm, the fruits of her work, alone, the virgin birth. No, he said firmly. It's yours and mine, legally. I'm not a mean man, Annie. You'll find me patient, but stubborn. I can wait. Annie sighed. Or was it a shudder? She looked up at the puckering edges of the evening sky. She put down the knife she had been peeling a giant lichen with. She wiped her hands on her apron and lifted the door flap. All right, then, she said. Wait. For what? The sandstorm, she said. And she got into the storm cellar and pulled down the weighty lid and locked it behind her. That was The Virgin Ground by Roselle George Brown, which was first published in World of If, February 1959. This is Books and Bonds with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. In the background, we've been listening to Alexandra Spence's performance live at Black Box Sound Series, which was performed in Sydney, July 2017. We've been playing um, uh, kind of music concrete, electronic uh, collage music by uh, female uh, musicians from relatively recent. This was 2017. The other ones were 2013. I thought we could talk a little bit about our author, uh, Roselle George Brown. Uh, she was born in New Orleans, 1926, and received her uh, BA and Master's in Greek. She first published a short story in 1958 at 33 and was nominated for the Hugo Award the next year in 1959 for Best New Author. Sadly, she died young at 41, so she only was writing for about eight years, um, and she died from lymphoma. In the story we heard today, uh, it was interesting to see a story from an unattractive or more homely woman's point of view. Most women in science fiction during this period of time, which was the 60s, um, though it could also be said about now too, are young, beautiful women. So having a character that's not uh, books and blonde to say is an interesting point of view and not normal uh, and the men in the story don't really care about these women's resumes they only make the snap judgment kind of treating them like livestock and choosing them based off of their looks and disposition or even at the end based off of their name uh, the main 
protagonist, though, is uh, pretty awesome and a rebel, and she's, well, less attractive, is a very strong female protagonist. There's a question left at the end of why this man didn't want a wife. Initially, by the sound of her, his neighbor, it sounded like maybe he was gay or something, but when you meet him, he seems more like a misanthrope. And the twist at the end is that she's become similar to him. So that's all for today. Thanks for listening. Next up is music to play in the dark. So leave you a little bit with a little bit more music, and then you'll hear from our next DJ. Thanks for listening. Thank you. 